Well, as we begin a new year, 2019, one of the things that a number of people do uh, at the beginning of the year is that they come up with one word that is sort of their theme word for the year ahead. Well, we do that in women's ministry, but we don't start in January. In women's ministry, we start with our word in the fall. We, we do it over the programming year. And so this year, our word is, do y'all know what our word is this year? All right, anchored. Hopefully you have not missed that because everything we do this year ties into that word of anchored. You know, last fall we studied 1 Peter. Uh, Anchored, just we called it anchored, and every chapter was pointing us to being anchored in Christ regardless of what is going on in our lives. We continue that theme this semester with the book of Joshua, and I called it Anchored in the Battles of Life. Because just as Joshua and the Israelites fought battles, physical battles with the Canaanites that they went in to take the land, we're going to be fighting battles in life also as we try to embrace the abundant life that Christ has promised us. And we need to be anchored in Christ if we're going to see victory. And our battles may not be physical battles with weapons and, you know, taking down walls of cities. But we're going to be facing battles just the same in different ways. Our battles may be health battles, fighting sickness, disease. It may be relationship battles. It may be in your marriage or with children or family members or coworkers. Or neighbors. Your battles may be spiritual battles and other battles. We're all going to face battles. And the question I want us to think about this semester as we study this book is how are you going to fight the battles in your life? Are you going to fight them in your own strength? Or are you going to cling to your anchor, Jesus? the sure and steadfast anchor. And so as we do on the introduction to a study every uh, every semester, I, I like to give an overview of the book before we dive into it because it's important for you to get the big picture of the book. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is just kind of do the big picture overview of the book of Joshua. And a lot of this is just simple. We're going to fly through the beginning part I'm going to take a little bit more time at the end on the application. But let's just start with some of the things we just need to be reminded of as we study the book of Joshua. First is the author. Who wrote the book of Joshua? Well, to be honest, the Bible doesn't tell us who wrote the book of Joshua. It doesn't say, Joshua, I, Joshua, wrote these words. It doesn't say, and there is some debate about if he could have written it or not. Uh, The traditional view is that Joshua did write the book. But there are those who argue with that, and some say, well, he couldn't have written it because at the end he talks about his death. But others say uh, contemporaries of him could have, have added that. A lot of people believe that Eliezer the priest added that at the end of the book. I take the traditional view that Joshua wrote the book, but you just need to know that there are different 
viewpoints on that because it's not stated explicitly. He was an eyewitness of what happened, and that has to be part of who the author is. So Joshua fits, uh, just it, it makes sense that he would have written it. The second thing we want to look at is the theme. What is the theme of this book? And the one that stands out to me as I've been looking over this book the last few weeks is just God's faithfulness to his promises. You know, if you were here Sunday uh, for Cole's message, he talked about God's faithfulness to his people, to his promises. And this book is about the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham hundreds of years ago. But Abraham never saw that promise fulfilled in his lifetime. It's not because God wasn't faithful to his word. It's because it wasn't the right timing in God's bigger picture. And God's timing isn't always our timing. But God is always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And so this book tells us, the story of God's faithfulness to his promise, and then how that promise came about being fulfilled. Third thing we want to look at is the genre or the literary form of this book. And I know there's some of you out there going, I could care less what genre this is. But it's important for us to understand that because it helps us interpret a book, whether it's poetry, wisdom literature, narrative, history, it's always important to look at what is the genre. So that's why we do this. And there are really two genres that the book of Joshua fall under. One is that it's historical narrative. It's the story of the conquest of the promised land, Canaan. It's a narrative. It reads just like a story, but it's history. So that's the first genre that Joshua falls under. The second is that it's also a biography. It is a biography of the later years of Joshua when he took over the leadership after Moses. This is his story of his later years, and he demonstrated what true leadership looks like. And as we study this book, we're going to see some great principles about being a good leader. Well, then the next thing, the fourth thing I want to look at is the timeline. You know, how long did this book compass? I mean, how many years did this book last? I mean, how old was Joshua? And again, depending on which commentary you read, you're going to get different ages for how old Joshua was. But... I tend to agree with the scholars that say that he was probably 80 years old when this book started. And they come up with that because he was around 40 at the time of the Exodus. They wandered in the wilderness 40 years, which would make him almost 80 years old. Some say he was, may have been as old as 85. Others say he may have been, you know, in his 70s. But he was older. And I want to say that for those of us in our third trimester of life, don't get discouraged and say, God can never use me. I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 80, I'm even 90. 
What can God do with me? You know what? Look at Moses. Look at Joshua. That doesn't mean that we're put on the shelf just because we're climbing that ladder of age. That should be a great encouragement to us. And so the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 12, covers about seven years. This is the conquest. So half the book covers seven years. And then the rest of the book, the rest of his life, is spent dividing up the land and ruling the nation of Israel. Joshua 24, 29 tells us he died at the age of 110. So if he was around 80 when he started the conquest, then this book encompasses about 30 years of time. So that just gives you an overview of, of the time frame of this book. The fifth thing is that I want to look at is the outline. And the outline is very straightforward. Almost all the commentaries agree on how this book is divided. But it's divided into three main sections. The first is the conquest of the land. And again, this is chapters 1 to 12. This is seven years that it takes. We're going to spend our first five weeks of this study on this section. So we're spending most of our study on the first part of the outline, the first half of the book. The second part of the book is the division of the land. This takes place in chapters 13 to 21. We're only going to spend one week looking at that because that gets a little bit monotonous and there, you know, it, you'll see when we get there, but we're going to study it over one week. And then the last part of the book is Joshua's challenge to obedience. He challenged them at the end of the book to obey God. And we see that in chapters 22 through 24. And that's what we're going to study the last week. So that kind of gives you uh, just a blueprint of where we're going over these next seven weeks as we study this book. Well, the next thing I want to look at, and this covers actually more than just Joshua, but I think it's important for us to think about as we dive into this book. I want to talk about the symbolism that is part of just the history of Israel and today. You know, Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 10 that the events of the exodus and the conquest are valuable for Christians today because those events are important. They, they have significance as types. And when I say a type, I'm talking about a picture or a foreshadowing of something that's going to come. And so there are a lot of types that we see in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing something that's going to be happen in the New Testament or today. So that's what I want to go through uh, in these next few minutes. Uh, let me give you some examples of, of types. One is Joshua. He is a type or picture of Christ. In Hebrews 4.8, the name Jesus in Greek is equivalent to Joshua in the Hebrew. And they both mean the same thing, Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. 
And just as Joshua conquered earthly enemies, so Jesus conquered every enemy we'd ever face through his death and resurrection. And just as Joshua led the Israelites into rest, into victory, Jesus leads believers into spiritual rest and spiritual victory. And just as Joshua gave the tribes their inheritance that was promised, Jesus gives us our inheritance, our riches in Christ, once we come and put our faith in him. So Joshua is a type or picture of Jesus. Second type is Egypt. And I know we're not studying Egypt in this book, but it's part of this whole journey. Egypt is a picture of the life of a non-believer the non-Christian life. When a non-believer is under the bondage of sin, just like Egypt, they were under the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh. As a non-believer, we are under the bondage of sin and really to Satan and his world. His world. Just as they had no hope in Egypt, Their lives, it was going to end in death. The non-Christian life has no hope apart from a Savior. It's going to end in death, spiritual death. And so Egypt pictures life as a non-believer apart from a Savior, apart from Christ. It pictures our life before we came to Christ. And we have no hope because we're slaves to sin. We have no hope apart from a Savior. That brings us to the third type, the crossing of the Red Sea. That's a picture of our salvation by faith. And just as God delivered the Israelites from the bondage of slavery and death by their faith in the blood of the Lamb, remember at Passover they had to put the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost so that the the angel of death would not take their firstborn son. But they had to put their faith in it. They could put the blood up there, but if they didn't put their faith, it would do no good. But that's how God delivered them. The same way God delivers us out of our bondage, out of our old life without him, into new life through faith in the blood of the perfect lamb. So we leave our old life just like they left their old life in Egypt. We leave our old life and experience a new life. That, that's the picture of the crossing of the Red Sea. Then fourth, the wilderness. So we're kind of tracing Israel's history through this. Uh, fourth is the wilderness. It's a picture of the carnal life, living as a Christian but in disobedience to God. We're doing things our way instead of God way, God's way. You know, uh, they came out of bondage to salvation when they crossed the Red Sea. But they did not experience that abundant life that God had for them in Canaan because they listened to the ten spies who said, we can't take that land. And they refused to obey God, and they stayed in the wilderness, and they stayed there 40 years until every adult male died. That's the carnal life, not experiencing the riches that God wants to give us because we're disobedient. Because we're doing it our way. You know, I, I can tell you that's a horrible time of life because I was there in the wilderness for two and a half years in college. Carnal, 
and you're missing. You know something's missing. But that is what the, the Israelites experienced. They could not experience the blessings of the promised land because of disobedience. And Paul talks about the carnal man in 1 Corinthians 3. The fifth type or picture is Canaan. And this is a picture of the spirit-filled life. Where we walk with Christ, we, we um, yield to him, we obey him, and we are able to experience all the riches that he has given us. You know, he said in John 10.10, 10, I came to give you life, that you might have it more abundantly. That's an abundant life that you get to experience. Um, we can embrace all the promises of God as we walk in the power of his spirit. That doesn't mean that as a spirit-filled Christian that you're not going to ever experience pain or conflict or even failure when we step out in our own strength. Because we look at Canaan and the battles there. There were battles. Canaan is a picture of the spirit-filled life, not a picture of heaven, as some of the songs that we sing imply, that we're going to cross the Jordan River and we're going to wake up in heaven. But that's not what this is a picture of, because the book of Joshua records battles and defeat and sin and enemies. None of those are going to be present in heaven. So Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life and all that inheritance that God wants us to enjoy and embrace. So those are the types. And then I want to wrap up this morning with application. And so the next section I want to look at is just the personal application. And as I mentioned earlier, we're all going to face battles in life. Some of you are facing battles today. And I just want to point out some of the battles that Joshua and the Israelites faced in this book. And then how, how can we apply them to our own lives? So, and these are more subtle battles, not the, you know, warfare. But these are more of the subtle battles that we will face. The first one is the battle of inadequacy, chapter 1. You know, Joshua took over the leadership after Moses died. And he obviously felt overwhelmed, inadequate, based on the number of times that he, that God and even the people had to remind him. You know, God said, I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Only be strong and courageous. And so Joshua struggled with the battle of inadequacy. Can you imagine taking over the leadership after following Moses? But we struggle with inadequacy, too. You may be saying, God, I can't be a, a good mother. I'm, I'm not a good wife. I can't do this. I'm not a good daughter. I'm not a good... Coworker, I'm not a good leader in this ministry. God, I can't do what they're asking me to do. And you feel inadequate. You know, I, I fight this battle every day. 
when I took this job to come here uh, as your women's director 14 years ago now, uh, I felt so inadequate to do this ministry. But I knew God was calling me. I still feel inadequate to do this ministry. Every day, I have to go to my knees in the morning and say, God, help me. Because I don't want to take this ministry down the wrong path. I feel inadequate in this publishing journey that I'm in the middle of. God, I feel like I'm going to fail. So how do we fight the battle of inadequacy? And before I even go there, let me just say that the words that God gave to Joshua, we need to remember those too. I won't fail you. I won't forsake you. You be strong and courageous. Follow my leading. And, and that's what we need to remember. If God has led you to do something, you do it. So then, how do we fight the battle of inadequacy? And I'm going to give you one word with each of these battles. I tried to simplify it to give you something that would be easier to remember. Um, and the one word here is the word draw. Draw from the strength of his adequacy, not your own. Remember where your adequacy comes from. It comes from God, not yourself. It doesn't matter how gifted you are in an area. You still draw from his strength. Draw from him, not your abilities. So the second battle we see in this book is the battle of danger, chapter 2. And I'm not going to take us through every chapter in case you're wondering... Um, I actually had a longer list of battles where I did this last week, and I had to cut. So, But chapter 2, the battle of danger, where Joshua sent two spies to check out Jericho, and they quickly found themselves in danger. They were being hunted down by the king and his men and probably would have lost their lives if they had been found. But God protected them. He led them to safety. And throughout this book, as we study all the things that go on. They found themselves in danger from time to time. And we're also going to go through seasons of danger and fight battles of danger. We may not be running for our lives, like Joshua or the spies, but we're still going to find ourselves in battles of danger, seasons of danger. It may be danger like weather-related dangers, tornadoes, hurricanes natural disasters, sickness, physical accidents that happen, robberies, rape, terrorist attacks, school shootings. We live in a dangerous world today. All you have to do is watch the news, which I don't watch anymore because I don't want to know what's going on. So how do we find victory over the battles of danger? The one word, trust. We trust the one who is sovereign over our lives. We don't stay locked in our houses trying to protect ourselves. We trust God that he's going to protect us or it's part of his will if something happens. You know, a number of years ago, we've been talking about the Amazon. When I lived in Dallas, 
I went to the Amazon with a, a different mission agency, Amazon uh, Outreach. And it just so happened that we were scheduled to go to the Amazon two weeks after 9-11. People weren't flying then. And we met together as a team to decide, is this something that we really need to do? Is this wise to go to the Amazon? <clears throat> and we felt like God wanted us to go and take the gospel to these people, unreached people on the Amazon River, and we went. We, we trusted the sovereign one that, hey, and we said, if it's our time to go, hey, we'll just go in the Amazon jungle. We weren't being flippant about it, but we felt like we can't live in fear. And I will say that when we got to the DFW airport, which is normally packed, uh, it was a little bit eerie when there was probably 10 other people in the airport beside us. And we thought, did we do the right thing? Don't let your lives paralyze you. Your fear of danger in these battles paralyze you. The same thing a few years when I lived in Dallas, we went to Israel. And the week before we were supposed to spend the night in a city, they had a huge bombing on the news. And we thought, we're going to be staying in that very city seven days from now. Is this a good idea to go? And again, we prayed and said, God, we're going. We feel like you want us to go. And obviously, I'm here to tell you about it. Don't let those seasons and battles of danger hinder you. You know, some may say, well, what about those Christian martyrs who died for their faith? Jim Elliott, the young man that we read about this just this last year who was murdered on this Indian, this island in the Indian Ocean for taking the gospel to an unreached people. God didn't protect them. You know what? God delivered them into the best protection ever, that they never have to worry about their lives. That was part of God's plan. They trusted God, and so should we. Third, the battle of the impossible. <clears throat> and, and I went back and forth. Do I call it the battle of the impossible or the battle of obstacles? They're, it's basically the same thing. And we see this all throughout the book. You know, chapter 3, they had to cross the Jordan River. Chapter 6, they had to somehow take Jericho, and it was surrounded by these tall walls. I'm, I'm sure that they were standing there. God, you told us to go take Canaan, but how are we going to get across this river? How are we supposed to take Jericho when it's surrounded by these huge walls? It is impossible. But you know, nothing is impossible with God. He loves the impossible because that's where he is most glorified. You know, they had to go in and fight giants. And those obstacles could have discouraged them. And they could have quit and said, there's no way, turn it around. But God took care of it. He divided the Jordan River. He took down the walls of Jericho. He defeated the enemies. God is a God of the impossible. But do we believe that? When we're in the battles of the obstacles facing us and we're thinking, God, there is no way I'm going to get through this. There's no way you can accomplish this. Oh, yes, there is. But do we believe it? And I will tell you, 
I confess, there are times I don't. And then I'll tell God, you know, or I'll, I'll in my mind think, God, this obstacle's bigger than you are. And he convicts me of it. God is a God of the impossible. Don't give in and give in to defeat. And then fourth, oh, I didn't give you the word. The word, how do we fight and overcome the battle of the impossible? Believe. We have to believe that our God is all-powerful, that there's nothing he can't do. And we put our faith in the omnipotent God, and we believe that he can do anything. All right, then the fourth one, the battle of self-sufficiency, chapter 7. This is the opposite of the battle of inadequacy, because in the battle of inadequacy, you're feeling like, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. The battle of sufficiency says, I can handle this on my own. God, I don't need you. And we see this in chapter 7, when the spies, Joshua sent two spies to check out the city of Ai, and they went in, and they came back and said, oh, Piece of cake. We only need a few people. Don't send many people. Don't waste sending people. We got this. A little overconfident. And they were defeated. And the same thing happens to you and me when we step out in our strength, overconfident. God, I got this. You take a break. I can handle this. That's when we're going to face defeat. They underestimated the enemy. And we need to be careful to not do that. So how do we fight this battle of self-sufficiency? Well, I couldn't come up with one word here, so I kind of tweaked. I had to use two words, and that is humble yourselves. You know, I have to let go of my pride and say, God, I need you. And And we humble ourselves and admit that we need him, even if we're strong in areas. We still need him. Never let that battle of self-sufficiency push him aside. Fifth, the battle of disobedience. Chapter 7. You know, in the battle of Jericho, Achan, a man by the name of Achan, disobeyed God. And he took what God had clearly said, do not take. He put in the ban. Achan didn't listen. Achan did his own thing, and he disobeyed, and he paid the consequences. He was stoned to death. And there are consequences every time you and I sin. So when we find ourselves in that battle of disobedience of like, I think I'm just going to do, I know God said don't do that, but I, you know, this won't hurt. We need to be careful. So how do we win the battle of disobedience? Simply, obey. We don't rationalize. We don't try to think of why it's okay in this instance. We just plain and simple obey because there will be consequences. And then the last battle, and again, there's more in here that I wish we had time to cover, but um, the last one I'm going to cover is the battle of idolatry, chapter 24, the very last chapter of the book. 
And this is where Joshua challenged them at the end of his life. Who are you going to serve? Choose today whom you're going to serve. The gods of this land are our God. And every day we fight the battle of idolatry here as the world entices us. No, we may not have stone statues on our mantle that we worship, but we worship other things. And an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. We have to remember that he alone is the one who satisfies. He alone is the only one worthy of our worship. So how do we fight the battle of idolatry? The one word here is remember. We need to remember who he is, why we worship him, what he's done for us. We need to remember his promises. We need to remember that he is the source of satisfaction that lasts, not temporary. What battles of life are you facing today? And I hope you'll take some time to think through that this week and this next seven weeks. What battles are you in the middle of? And how are you fighting them? Are you anchored in Christ? Or are you trying to just fight it on your own strength? And so as we begin the study of Joshua, my prayer is that we would be victorious over these battles of life. But we have to stay anchored in him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the lessons from the book of Joshua. And as we dig in this week, Lord, just show us areas and battles that maybe we're trying to handle by ourselves. Father, help us to just keep our eyes on you, to remember how much we need you, and we cannot do it. We cannot win these battles apart from you. I pray that for each one of us in this room today, that we would see victory in the battles we're facing as we stay anchored in you. In Jesus' name, amen.